live on the island, but we're, we're like an hour and a half away or something. So when, rather than us drive three hours every day uh, when we speak here, they put us up at the Girl Center, which is really nice. So um, it was kind of fun for us. Andrew says he loves this place. He's like, Dad, this place is everything. It has playgrounds and food. So this is the Engage January 2016 BTS. I'm in the right place, right? Cool. You guys excited to be here? It's not a women's conference or women's time around. <laughs> Although it sure seems like it. Awesome. Fantastic. Women of the Lord. Cool. Um, yeah, this is my beautiful wife, Hiran. We um, met over in Korea. I was visiting my parents over there. They were university professors. My dad is kind of the one who started all the counseling schools in Wyoming. It was his vision. All the different counseling schools, and then uh, so they were in Wyoming for quite a while, and then ended up over in Korea as university professors. And uh, so I went over to visit them one time and speak in Korea, and I saw this uh, girl leading worship, and I had just had such a spiritual and uh, <laughs> it was the best worship time I'd ever had. <laughs> I don't remember anything that was sung. It was great. If I was a Lego person, I would have been like. <laughs> she grew up over here in the jungles in Papua New Guinea. And her parents are Wycliffe missionaries or Bible translators over there. And uh, that's her there, in case you can't pick her up. And her sister next to her. And I grew up in places like this, in Lausanne, Switzerland. And uh, this is uh, the Sea of Galilee. That's, that's my brother down here, with the glasses on, you can see. Right here, that's me. And um, the Sea of Galilee, and then this is, I think, Rome or Corinth or something. This is... Oh, this is Gideon's stream. You know that story in the Bible where Gideon and his army were selected by God and God had them all drink from a stream and then the ones that drank like this got to fight in Gideon's army. So we wanted to make sure we drank the right way. When we were there. <laughs> all the other ones that lapped it up like a dog got sent home. So we didn't want to do that. Anyways, Hiran and I became friends and uh, she came over and did her DTS here and went on Rwanda and outreach and that was a good time for me to meet with a jeweler and get a ring made. This guy was amazing. Uh, he passed away shortly after we got married, but just an amazing man of God. And he, uh, when I first met him, he was doing a $52,000 ring for Julia Roberts, and so uh, a blue diamond ring. And so uh, I looked at the receipt for that, and I thought, I am screwed. <laughs> but his cousin had told me to, to meet with him, so I did. And uh, just an amazing guy. It turns out that when he first started his jewelry business uh, here in Hawaii, um, the Lord just told him to go over to the Anastasis, which is one of the YWAM ships that YWAM has. It was parked over in Honolulu, and the Lord just told him to go over there and ask if anybody needed rings made um, for, like, proposing or marriage or whatever, and there were 30 people. <laughs> and he gave them all of their rings and their diamonds and made all of their rings for them and everything and went into a lot of debt over the whole thing. And uh, within, like, a month, he came... Rebounding from that, and uh, the Lord just completely poured out His blessing on His business, and uh, is one of the top jewelry designers in the world as a result. And uh, so I proposed to Hiran at the top of Mauna Kea. It's nice up there. It's cold up there. You haven't been up there yet. But it's a beautiful place, and we raced down to the, by the water and had dinner, and I kissed the single life goodbye. And we got married, and uh, we had a very Hawaiian, Korean, Canadian, American, um, Papua New Guinean wedding. So. We uh, um, were led by some Hawaiians from that area. They did a haka, and we asked them for permission to come on the land. And they gave us permission to come on the land. We exchanged gifts, and then all the guests could sit down and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it was just a lot of fun getting married there. And uh, here we are just in front of the lighthouse. 
great time. We had the reception right there under the trees. And it was beautiful. We had the ocean crashing on these cliffs. It's about 200, 250 feet up, probably, the cliffs, and we're just right on the edge of there. So we told people who brought children, you're in charge of your children. <laughs> make, sure you, make sure you know where they are. And uh, nine months later, uh, my wife noticed that her belly was getting bigger. That's, that was hers, not mine. <laughs> no, I'm in my second trimester. Baby boy, so a little British punk rocker. <laughs> loved shopping when he was a kid, Hill, driving around, and loved doing light reading before he goes to He loves anything to do with water. He just, he just, he loves. Uh, he hasn't learned how to swim yet, but he sure loves surfing. So <laughs> I need to teach him how to swim. <laughs> he loves paddling out there and riding the waves. So, uh, but a great guy. There's Andrew. Um, and then Kiara was born a short time later. She loves her mom. As you can see. Um, and this is her when she was one years old, and she had her traditional Korean hanbok on. She loves acting and making different faces. And I thought of a great title for this picture. Um, <laughs> And then Acacia was born, and she's a little miracle story, and I'll tell you about more later in the week, I don't know, but uh, just how the Lord just saved her life when she was born. And she's a lot of fun. She's a little community. So, so there's the three kids. Um, they're all single, by the way. <laughs> I have an application here in case you want to date my daughter. Um, just ask for little things like your name and height, social security number, um, Boy Scout rank, how fast you can run. In 50 words or less, explain what do not touch my daughter means to you. Um, in 50 words or less, explain what the word late means to you. I like this one here. If I was to be shot, the last place I'd want to be shot in is in the guys. Just ask for your dental information, your greatest fear. I like the one that says, you know, um, the one thing I hope this application does not ask is, and then you can just go ahead and comment. I have a $1,000 non-refundable deposit that right now if you're interested. So you have to wait about 30 years before I give a decision. Feel free to fill that out if you like. Um, I hope you enjoy Hawaii. The Big Island is amazing as you, as you get around here. It's just a fabulous place. There's all kinds of beautiful white sandy beaches, and I hope you get to know the island really well. The Lord brought you here to do DPS, but he also brought you to Hawaii. And uh, he wants you to enjoy this island. It's a, it's a great place. You'll, you'll love it. There's black sand beaches and, and red sand beach and green sand beach and pink sand beach and all these other places. There's waterfalls. and This is the valley that's close to our house, Waipio Valley. The opposite of the valleys is um, Kololu Valley. It's just a beautiful island. So get to know it and get to know the people here. Here's a picture of me swimming. <laughs> that's not me. <laughs> <laughs> I always like to say it's my brother, but <laughs> there's the dolphins right here. You can go swim with the dolphins. I had a great time with them. Last time I was just in an area with a bunch of dolphins, and I just got out of the kayak, and the mother dolphins were teaching the younger dolphins how to jump, and so they would put their little, like the little dolphins are about this big, and they put them on the end of their nose, and then throw them <laughs> <laughs> in these arches and try and get them to do their arches, and it was really cute, and they just swim all around you, so um, super fun. Um, we get snow here, of course. You'll probably see um, you know, quite a few times when it snows while you're here up on Mauna Kea. And uh, they're the largest observatories in the world there for um, the best views of the stars. So if you want to see the stars, it's just breathtaking. This is a picture of the stars at night. Uh, and then there's the volcano, which is, which is really amazing, too. This is 
the picture during the day, and this is the same shot at night. So, you know, that whole crater is red, and I heard it's going off right now, um, erupting and stuff like that, and the lava just flows down and into the water. And um, We add, I think, what is it, about 300 acres of land to the Big Island every year, uh, because the volcano just flows down there, and the lava hardens, and we just keep getting bigger and bigger. That's a big island, so it's pretty amazing to go see. So let me get around and see this island. Uh, welcome to Hawaii. It's good to have you guys here. We're going to talk about the uh, nature and character of God um, this morning. And I want to talk about what this means, because uh, as Wyman, we inherited this teaching from a lady named Joy Dawson, who was an early teacher back in the Wyman days. And I remember as a five-year-old, I was sitting on the front row, and Joy was speaking in Switzerland, and she said, this morning I'm going to speak on knowing God, knowing God. And then she looked at me and she goes, young man, do you know God? And I was like, <laughs> 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 I thought it. She's an intimidating lady but loves Jesus and an amazing uh, person, uh, still alive today in California. And uh, But she was one of the early ones to speak on the nature and character of God. Um, it's kind of a weird terminology, though. You know, in English, we don't... Um, you know, what do we mean by nature and character? By nature, what we're referring to is kind of those, those fundamental qualities that a person has. You know, just those very foundational um, things that they do, foundational ways of living, uh, the qualities that are part of their makeup, their identity, their essence, um, kind of their, their system for how they exist. You know, what is their... Um, like what is the system of their, their belief system, for instance, that causes them to make decisions that they, that they make? And we might say a person is good-natured, right? Or um, um, bad-natured, or, you know, so we kind of use that word in English. Um, and another, another way of putting it might be their personality. Uh, might be another good way to put nature, the word nature is their personality. And then character, we kind of know what character refers to, right? Character is kind of this... Um, combination of things that distinguish a person, you know, their moral character, people might refer to that, you know, it's kind of the characteristics that you can see if you were to look over a person's life and you, you could see the decisions that they made, you could tell a lot about their character and um, kind of the moral force, their integrity. And another word that might be used for character is, is temperament. You know, so God has all of these things. You know, he has character, and he also has, like, this, a, a nature, you know. And, and one of the deepest questions, of course, we'll look at is, is God really good? Um, you know, people say, God is good. All the time, all the time, God is good. And I just want to smack them sometimes. Because, you know, it's easy to say that, but when you go to, like, a, a place where there's abject poverty... You know, like some places in Brooklyn, New York, or, uh, you know, Miami, go to these places and these projects, and there's this absolute hopelessness and devastation. Or if you go to other nations that are in poverty, and, you know, every nation is in poverty. Um, or you go to Indonesia after there's been a tsunami that's killed 200,000 people, and you stand there with the people. Um, you know, God is good all the time. All the time God is good isn't the first thing that comes to your mind. There's real suffering. There's real devastation. You know, you, you talk to a person who's been raped, and, um, you know, God is good. Right? Really? 
So we're going to look at that question because I think it's important for us to look at, you know, is God really good? I mean, can we really trust in his character? Not just when we're sitting here in beautiful Hawaii in a wonderful classroom surrounded by people that love Jesus and everything, but, you know, can we really trust his character when we're out and about in the world, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and seeing some really horrifying things? Where's God's character in the midst of that? So we're going to talk about that this week. As I was praying for this DTS, you know, the, 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 the plumeria flower came to mind for you guys. The, the plumeria flower is actually, in Hawaiian, we call it the malia. And uh, malia is the Hawaiian word for perfect. But I love the definition uh, of perfect that Hawaiians have. Um, because sometimes when we think of perfect, we think of like not making any mistakes. Oh, thank you so much. Um, we think about not making any mistakes and all that kind of stuff. That's what we think of when it's perfect. But actually, the Hawaiian definition for perfect is the coming together of everything good. It's the coming together of everything good. And I really like that because it kind of speaks to motivation and inspiration. Just the coming together of everything good. Our wedding, um, the plumeria was the, our, our flower that we had uh, literally all over the place in our wedding using all different kinds of ways. It was on our wedding cake and all that stuff because we just really felt like just our, our marriage was just the coming together of everything good. You know, it was, um, it was obviously God bringing everything together and, and He is good. So um, that's, that's kind of the picture I got for your DTS as I was praying for you is that for, for all of you, this will just be a season of just good things coming together in your life. You know, God has good intentions for you. And it's going to be just an eye-opening experience of, of experiencing His goodness. Uh, just kind of that merging point to a lot of good things for you. Cool? Cool. Um, I love taking time for questions. And uh, I will begin each session by saying, does anybody have any questions about what we've, what we've talked about? And stuff like that. So if there's a question that pops into your head... Um, if it's something like, oh, I missed that reference or whatever, then just raise your hand. But if it's like, you know, um, something else, question on the material or whatever, just write it down and know that um, there'll be a time when I, I do take questions. So um, that's not a pressure. You don't have to think of questions because um, that's just not a pressure you need to feel. But if there is something that pops in your head, even when I preach on Sundays at my church, I take time for questions after the service, <laughs> after the sermon. Because there's been a lot of times where I've been sitting in church and I have questions about something that was just said. You just never get a chance to ask them, right? So sometimes we learn more from the questions after a sermon than we do from the sermons. We're going to start really foundationally by talking about who God is. And, um, you know, we had this kind of a, a time here where we were introduced. Thank you, Marco, for that. And and uh, you saw the video. And all of that was kind of an introduction. You met my family. And uh, that's all very important, especially in Hawaii. Introductions are are really important, getting to know somebody, and not only them, but also their family, and their ohana, and their, you know, the context in which they live, but how does God introduce himself to them, because this is brilliant, I, you know, God's pretty amazing, I love the way he starts, and, and, you know, he had this amazing idea of writing a book, I, I you know, it was great, great idea, best-selling book ever, uh, and by far, I mean, no other book has even come close, and translated in the most languages, obviously, of any other book in history, and so, you know, he's doing pretty well from his book. And, and one of the hardest things when you're starting a book is trying to decide, like, what is the, how should I start this? Because if somebody reads the first few paragraphs of your book and they're not really that interested, they'll just toss it, right? 
So the beginning is so important. So how did God begin his book? Here's, here's, here's his book. It probably looks something like this, you know, when he first wrote it, and then it ended up looking like this, and then now it looks like this. But um, <laughs> in his book, <laughs> no, he didn't invent the iPhone. I'm just saying it's the app, right? Anyways, um, Apple users are like, why? Well, God didn't invent the iPhone. Uh, okay, so here's some things that God thought we ought to know when he started his book, okay? Uh, we read the very first few words. It says, in the beginning, God. Now, this already answers so many questions for us as a, as a human race. Um, suddenly, we realize there was a beginning. Isn't that great? Uh, we're not like some kind of random, you know, space junk. But there was actually a beginning, and uh, apparently, there was someone there at the beginning, and he's about to tell us what happened. This, the, even the first four words of Genesis are so already astonishingly amazing. Because there are so many people for, are searching for meaning, they're searching for purpose, they're searching for all that kind of stuff, and they're wondering, you know, what their point is, and what the point is of life, and they're so afraid of death, and they're just, you know, fighting like crazy to make medical advances because they're so scared to die, and it goes on and on, and, you know, all of these things. And right in the, right in the very first four words of this, God answers that question. We just lost this when, when we say that in the beginning, God, what we're saying is that he's literally the foundation for all things. That, that everything started with God. He's the foundation of everything, and then from everything, God built on that. Um, now, I'll tell you something. The very next word from that is, in the beginning, God created. He created. Oh, one time, I was speaking in DTS on this, and I was at this very point where God created, and I was just talking about He's the foundation for everything, and He's the creator, like that. And, uh, and all of a sudden, it was like my, like my legs from my waist down were completely stuck in concrete. I could not move at all. And, and I tried, I, I could go like this, and I could go like this, but I couldn't move from my waist down. So, never happened to me before, uh, hasn't happened since. And so I just said, um, I said, excuse me, I can't, I can't move my legs. <laughs> and everybody just looked at me. And I was like, um, like, I can't move my legs. Like, I can go like this, but it feels like my, like, from my waist down is just in concrete. And they're all just staring at me. And I was like, so I finally looked at the DTS leader, and I was like, uh, dude, I can't move my legs. <laughs> he's like, uh. he's like, can you, can you, can you move your legs? I was like, no. He's like, oh. So they're all just sitting there staring at me still. Now they all know I can't move my legs. And they're just like, <laughs> I kind of had an idea of maybe what they could do, but um, finally this one guy is like, you want us to pray for you, dude? I was like, hey, that'd be awesome. Yeah, that'd be good. You know, I don't want to be here for the rest of my life. It's like the guy is like planted on a stage and can't move his legs. <laughs> so, like, people are taking pictures and selfies. And so, uh, so they all they all come up on stage, and for some reason they all feel led to like lay their hands on me. So I don't know if you have like you know sixty hands on your legs, but it feels really weird. So they're all like praying for my legs and stuff, and they're praying prayers like you know, oh God, help him to move his legs. I'm like, yeah, that's a good prayer. I like that one. You know? <laughs> Somebody over here is doing spiritual warfare. You know, move your legs, move, move. <laughs> You know, this big Tongan guy came, and he just put his shoulder right into my hip and didn't even budge. I mean, not even, he's like, oh, he can't move his legs. <laughs> so they're all praying and stuff, and I'm just standing there, and I'm like, what on earth is going on? This, this is crazy. And all of a sudden, this one guy just starts crying. You know, like, not like not just tears, but like, <laughs> like that kind of crying, you know? And I'm like, oh my gosh, he loves my legs. So he's like crying and crying, and then they, pretty soon other people start crying, like, holy cow, like, 
what's going on? And all of a sudden I hear, I'm trying to hear, like, what are they praying? Because apparently it's pretty emotional. And uh, all of a sudden this one guy is like, you know, oh God, you just showed me that I believed in the lie of evolution when you're the creator. Oh. He's like, oh. As I'm listening, I can hear all of them are starting to just repent for believing in this ridiculously stupid idea that has come and, you know, been poisoned in our school systems to subvert the truth that God is creator. And so they're all this prank. And I'm getting a little bit peeved in the spirit. I said to them, I was like, you guys, you asked me, because they'd asked me to speak on hearing God's voice. I was like, you guys asked me to come speak on, like, hearing the voice of God, and you don't even believe that he spoke at the very beginning. Like, if you don't believe he spoke at the very beginning, then what am I doing here? <laughs> and so they're, like, praying, and they're, like, repenting and all this stuff. And finally I could feel, like, I could move my legs, but I didn't want to, like, move them because I didn't want to disturb anything. So I'm just standing there. And finally somebody says, can you move your legs? I was like, yeah, I can move my legs again. You know, God says at the very beginning he was there and he created. So this is actually his first title. You know, God the creator. You know, uh, God, obviously, you could say it was his first title, I guess. But really, it's the title of creator. And the amazing thing about God, because he is creator, is he's never stopped creating. Sometimes, you know, we, we read through the first part of Genesis and we think, well, that was that story. But God has never stopped creating. He's still creating. I mean, I guess one of the obvious questions then is, well, what is he creating there? Well, one of the things that he's creating is when we read in 1 Corinthians 5.17, we read that, uh, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. So if we're new creations in Christ, then somebody must be doing the creating, and that person is God. One of the things he's creating is a new you. Now, I've discovered that a lot of people have a problem with knowing God as creator, and they also have a real problem with being a new you, because they don't believe he created. You know, if you don't believe God created everything, then you're going to have a hard time believing that he can do any work in you at all. If you don't think you have the power to create everything that was here, and that is here, and that is in existence today, then why on earth would you have the faith and the trust and everything to believe that God can create a new you and transform you? You see how that's connected? You're going to see a lot more about how that's connected as we go through the week. And I'm going to tell you right now, there may be some things I say that kind of tick you off, which is totally fine. And if you disagree with something I say, that's totally fine too. As long as you can defend it biblically and with the character of God, because that's the only thing that matters to me. Um, people say, you know, I had one guy tell me on a plane one time, I think Christianity is a crutch. And I said, it's a lot more than a crutch, dude. It's my foundation for life. Jesus yeah. isn't a crutch. <laughs> He's my foundation. Everything is built in my life on the Word of God. And uh, now, I might shake you up a little bit, but that's okay. You know, just don't worry. Just trust that, you know, that the Lord is working in your hearts and minds. Because there are some times when we discover things in the Word of God that are completely opposite of what we believed. I mean, look at Saul when he's on the road to Tarsus. The dude was killing Christians and thinking that he was doing the right thing. You know, and then he had an experience with God. And let me tell you something. When I was in seminary... You know, my professors would say, you can't base your theology on an experience with God. Okay. I think some people need their theology transformed by an experience with God. I think Saul, when he was on the road to Tarsus, there was, he had an experience with God that was absolutely revolutionary. Now, I understand what they're saying, that we can't just, um, you know, base our theology on experiences apart from God. I get that. 
But God wants to give us some experiences that are absolutely going to transform our theology. Transform how we see Him. Transform how we view Him. And I think all of us at some point need to have these experiences with God that just give us light and revelation about who He is. Speaking of, the very next thing that happened is after God created, it says, God revealed Himself. He uncloaked Himself. How did God uncloak Himself? How did he reveal himself? Our four-year-old daughter at the time, she was four, now she's five, uh, when, hi Kiara, um, when uh, Hiran was teaching her about the, the days of creation and stuff, Kiara wanted to know what the light was that God created when he said, let there be light, because the sun and the moon and the stars were created later on. Pretty good question for a four-year-old. I mean, I don't mean to boast or anything, but she's brilliant. Uh, so, good question, right? What was the light? Because the sun and the moon and the stars and all that stuff was created later on. So what was the light when God said that there be light? Actually, in the Hebrew, it says, you know, light be seen, or light be revealed, or uh, that, that's kind of what it is in the Hebrew. So literally, it was an uncloaking of himself. God was allowing himself to be seen as light. Now we know throughout scripture God reveals himself as light, right? Isaiah says that people in walking in darkness have seen a great light. I love the, I think it's the King James version of that, because it's kind of more like Lord of the Rings. It's just like, it says those um, people who have been walking in the deepest gloom <laughs> have seen a great light. I like that one. But uh, walking in darkness is in a great light, right? In John chapter 1, we see Jesus as the light, right? Uh, John says that Jesus is the light of the world. And then in Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, this is cool because at the beginning of the Bible, you have God revealing himself. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, John saw the city coming down and he says there was no sun, S-U-N. There was no sun there because God himself is the light. And the nations are walking to the glory of God. The light of God. Isn't that awesome? So throughout scripture you see God as light. Well, why is that so important to us? Why why is God why does that matter? It matters because God is saying, I can be seen. God is not some kind of mysterious God that's hard to know. At all. As a matter of fact, right from the very beginning, he revealed himself. He's saying, I want to be seen, and I want to be known. There's nothing mysterious about God. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Call unto me and I will answer you and I will show you great and mysterious things you don't even know. So God wants to show us things about himself. He wants to reveal himself to us. He's not difficult to know. That would be like the big cosmic joke, you know, God created us for a relationship and then just made it really hard to know him. <laughs> That'd be so, so mean. <laughs> He's not hard to know. He's not difficult to understand. Uh, he loves to reveal himself to us when we seek him. And we'll be talking more about that later on. You don't have to write these things down. But it's just something I want to think about for a moment. The Bible's a great book. I think that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. I think it's a textbook for how we should live our life. It talks about community relationships and loving one another and all that kind of stuff. It talks about, you know, when people make mistakes and, you know, how God um, still works through them. tells us stuff about God and people. It brings us hope and encourages us our, our faith. I, all that stuff about the Bible is true and great and fantastic. But, you know, has this ever occurred to you? Like, what did people do before the Bible? How did they know stuff about God? Because, I mean, we, we read, like, 
Moses has these amazing conversations with God, and um, Noah had these amazing conversations with God. He didn't have a Bible. How did Abraham know stuff about God, you know? To the point where he was even willing to sacrifice his son. Um, like, how did he have such faith in God? We, there was no Bible. And this is important for us to understand, because sometimes... Um, when we talk about recognizing his voice or communicating with him, you know, if you were to ask most Christians, how does God speak? They'd all be like, through his word. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, he wrote it. Um, but, you know, sometimes we can be so consumed with the book that we miss relationship with the author. Yeah. I mean, how did these people have relationship with the author? Uh, when they didn't even have a Bible? It's a good question. And actually, Paul answers it for us in Romans chapter 1. He writes in, uh, in Romans chapter 1, and if, if you're reading it in the, in the second language, we're starting in verse 18, but it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may, may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Now, look at what this is saying here. It's saying that God made stuff about God. Oops, I just, it went on. Oh, on, on, okay. Um, what has been made about God is plain to them. In other words, when something is made plain to you, it's easy to understand, Right? Like, if you say 2 plus 2 is 4 to somebody, and they're like, what? And then you get, like, two apples and two apples, and you make it plain to them, right? So it's easy to understand. What is known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, we just talked about that, since the creation of the world, God's, and this is a little play on words here by Paul, I like this. He says, his invisible qualities can be clearly seen. You see that? <laughs> invisible qualities can be clearly seen. Invisible, clearly seen. <laughs> How does that work, right? Um, well, everybody has invisible qualities, right? Um, when I first saw Hiran, I saw her physical qualities, the, the qualities that were easy to see. As I got to know her more, I, I got to know her invisible qualities. Um, one of the first things that I noticed about her was just she was a very gracious person, just the way she carried herself. There was such poise and elegance and graciousness to her. And, um, and, and that just really struck me as I got to know her and I started talking with her and speaking to her. You know, you get to know the invisible qualities of a person. The amazing thing about God is his invisible qualities, he's actually made them plain for us to see. Now, how did he do that? It says that he's made them plain by what has been made. Hmm. By, wait, what, what has been made? What is that referring to? Everything. Creation. Creation is a demonstration of his invisible qualities. Now, how does that work? Well, we'll look at it in a second. But before we do, what are his invisible qualities? It says it's his eternal power and divine nature. I want to talk about these two things for a second. Eternal power and divine nature. God's invisible qualities. Eternal power means God is absolutely unlimited in his power to create new things and to restore God is unlimited in his power to create new things and to restore. Unlimited. So when you think about your life, God is absolutely unlimited in his power to create new things and to restore. 
divine, um, the English word divine occurs in our Bible a few times, but the Greek word here only occurs once, and it's right here. And what it actually refers to is, you know, sometimes we think of divine as being like, you know, oh, you know, like music, <laughs> you know, we're like transported into yeah. out-of-body experience. So that's not what divine means at all. As a matter of fact, it's kind of the opposite. Divine actually means structured, organized, that he's a designer, he's a planner. <laughs> so if you're an organized person, you can be like, woohoo, God's organized, and so am I. And if you're not an organized person, you can go, woohoo, God's organized, <laughs> because I'm not. <laughs> right? So he's a planner, he's a structure, and all of these things can be seen from what has been made. So in other words, what does this tell us about God's invisible qualities? You know, what does this tell us about God? Can you make this? Not take the picture. Probably somebody could do that. Do you know anybody that can make this? Uh (laughs) It's amazing, isn't it? Powerful. I mean, when you look at this, and you don't, I mean, we're just looking at the surface, but just imagine all the life that's going on under the water, or in the woods, or, I mean, it's just teeming with life. I remember I was speaking one time, and this girl came up to me, and she was like, um, all upset, I could tell, in the break of the first day, uh, she was from Taiwan, and she's like, you mean you don't believe in evolution? And I was like... Well, it's a funny way to put that question. <laughs> um, evolution is just a theory. I actually believe in God. <laughs> I don't just believe in an idea. <laughs> and then she's like, you don't even believe in microevolution? I was like, mm, micro, macro, delayed, advanced, sped up, whatever, no, none of it. She's like, but when you're using a shovel and you start to develop calluses, like, you don't think that's already the beginning of the evolutionary process? I was like, uh, no, I'm pretty sure I don't believe that. That's <laughs> smart. Um, I knew it wasn't me. <laughs> you know when you have a moment where God just kind of uses your mouth? And I said to her, hey, I want to challenge you on something. I said, I want you to think about the term depth of design. Depth of design. Is it possible that God has designed things with such depth that they, they can actually adapt to their environment, that they can actually change, they can actually adapt to the area around them? Do you think that God could actually design my hands so that when I start using shovel that it'll actually develop calluses? I said, I want you to, instead of this ridiculous term evolution, I said, I want to challenge you to think in terms of the depth of God's design. And she was like, just turn around and walked away. <laughs> well, I came and I saw her a year later. I came and spoke in that DTS again. And a year later, she was there. And I was like, oh. Evolution girl's there. So I thought either she failed, because, you know, you can fail the details. Dun, dun. (laughs) Or she's staffing. (laughs) So the whole detail, she just ignored me, literally, um, as if I wasn't even in the room. And so then a year later, I came back, and she was there again. And I thought, okay, so either she failed again, (laughs) or she's staffing. And this time she came up to me, and she said, hi, do you remember me? And I said, yeah, you're Evolution Girl. Oh my gosh, she said, I'm so embarrassed. She said, you know, I couldn't even talk to you last year because I was just so embarrassed about everything. And I said, you know, you don't have to be embarrassed. You're the product of, uh, of an educational system that is without God. You know, I mean, you think about most of our education has come from people who don't even know God. 
Some of them even hate him. And we have given them such authority in what we believe. It's incredible to me. Where it actually trumps the authority of God. It's actually, you know, uh, it actually is against the authority of God. If we were to say, you know, if we were to read in the New York Times, for instance, you know, scientists have finally discovered the whole world came from a little red ant. There'd be a lot of Christians even who go, okay, so now we know. Isn't it crazy? And we have given these non-Christian, non-biblical, some God-hating educators this amazing influence into our mind. So that when we read in the Word of God, we're actually skeptical about the Word of God. Instead of being skeptical about these educators. And I said to her, you know, I said, you're just a product of, of a non-biblical educational system. You were educated by non-Christians who hated God. I said, that's totally fine. I said, you don't have to be embarrassed about it. That's just, that's what you believe because that's who taught you. I said, but are you still that way? And she said, no. She said, you know, in the last two years I've been stacking ETS. She said, I've just gotten to know God in such an amazing way and as creator and and as truth, and as father, and all these things, and she said, it's just been completely life-changing for me. She's actually um, back in school. She had her master's in microbiology or something, and now she's back in school getting her PhD, and um, she's in a fantastic um, scientific program, but it's not a Christian one, and she just Facebooked me the other day and said, you know, I'm just sitting here listening to these teachers, and she said, I think I finally figured it out. They're just, they're trying to describe truth, but um, without God. Yes. So they, they kind of basically try and figure out any possible way to describe truth, but without him. I mean, what does this tell us about who God is? Yeah. Mean, huh? There's, there's a, there's a, I love, there's a, there's an aspect of God. I'm, you know, when I worship Jesus, I don't like worship Jesus. When I picture Jesus, like I'm picturing him like in Revelation, like this double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. What do you use a sword for? Like for buttering your bread? Is it for cutting people's heads off? Wow. And he gets to do it in both directions. So that's, you know, he's got a double-edged sword that's like, you know, like a nuclear weapon coming out of his mouth. And then he's got like, you know, this, his eyes are white as, you know, blazing like fire, it says. And like, you know, his hair is white as wool. There's this description of Jesus where I'm like, I am so glad I'm on his team. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm on his team. That's the guy I want on my team because, dude, he is a warrior, and you can see this aspect of God, this you know ferocious, you know, uh, determination in his creation. You can tell a lot about the artist by by looking at his art. You know what this thing is? Anybody recognize this? You can only find it on the Big Island of Hawaii, and it's called a moonflower, and it only opens one night a year. Uh, in the light of a full moon. Now you got to think, why in God's green earth would He have created the moon flower? <laughs> Who's going to see this thing? It opens up one night a year, and uh, under a full moon, and this is it. And I have friends at our church, uh, Lynn and Kathy, who love photography as a hobby, and they studied the moon flower, and for several years they tried to capture it, and finally they captured this picture. Um, now let me ask you something. When you when you discover the moonflower, and you think about the timing issues in your life, you think God's a, you think God can handle the timing issues in your life? Yeah, yeah. I I kind of get that sense when I study the moonflower. Like, you know, 
when I'm frustrated because God's not doing something or because I'm waiting for something or whatever it is that we've got, you know, I have to remember the moonflower and be like, okay, Derek, God's pretty precise in his timing, so you just, just relax. <laughs> remember he made the moonflower. I mean, I just, I love the symmetry of how we're created as human beings. Don't you just love the symmetry that we have here, just looked in the mirror and thought, man, my face is amazing. I've got like two eyes and I have this nose and I have like two ears and, and you just kind of stare at your face thinking, it's pretty incredible actually how this face is completely unique and different from any other face and you're just kind of like, wow, this is amazing what God has created. There's all these different aspects of who he is that are reflected in his creation. What about this guy here? I mean, look at this thing. <laughs> so the koala bear climbs up the eucalyptus tree, gets high off of the eucalyptus leaves, and then falls asleep. And then when he wakes up, he jolts and usually falls to the ground. And then he's very angry, so he scrambles because he's not high. So he scrambles up the tree, gets high again. Fall asleep, falls out of the tree. All he does is get high and have sex his whole life. That's, that's, the, that's the, that's, there we go. And you look at this thing, I mean, it's like made out of spare parts, you know, it's got a, you know, it's like God had an extra nose, he's, he's like, you know what, oh, it works. I'm going to bug his eyes out so his nose looks good, there we go. That way people won't notice that monstrous nose. And look at the tiny little mouth he's got compared to his nose, it's just... It's hilarious, and it's like built like a little smiley face. <laughs> Imagine if it was inverted, we'd be like, "There's a little angry bear." Instead, it's like a little cute bear. So that's the you know, I look at this thing and I just think about God's sense of humor. I mean, He really is funny. I mean, they didn't have TVs for a long time, so this is what people would look at in Australia and just laugh. You know, so, <laughs> just kidding, Aussies. Um, but they're really they're just hilarious. I, I just think you know, this is just God's sense of humor. I mean. Look, now I'm going to show you some pictures, okay? And, and, and I think you can do this, okay? I'm going to show you some pictures. You tell me what is the similarity of these pictures, okay? Everybody understand the test? Yes? Do we have any Germans here? Has alles verstanden? Yeah? Okay, good. Okay. All right. Um, and people from Denmark got it. Okay, so for these pictures, and you just show me, like, what is the same in all these pictures, okay? Ready? Here we go. Okay, what's the similarity in all these pictures? Wow, okay, you guys are brilliant. Awesome. Yes, community groups. This is a bloat of hippos. That's the name, bloat. Bloat of hippos. <laughs> and a pod of whales. School of fish. Uh, these are amazing. These are geese. Uh, which are, you know, Canada geese. Any Canadians here? Yay! Should we just pause and sing the national anthem for you? That's okay. You know, you have to be careful when you sing the national anthem around Canadians because I think the hockey game's <laughs> <laughs> um, You know the thing about these geese right here? One goose by itself can fly about 80 miles. Did you know that? Together, in the V, they can fly over 3,000 miles. Wow. Now just think about that for a second. By itself... Like 60, 70, 80 miles by itself. In the group, 3,000 miles. Huh. I wonder if God's trying to tell us something here. <laughs> um, you know, there's verses in Scripture like, you know, God sets the lonely in families. And it's not good for man to be alone, men. <coughs> Marco. <laughs> Just kidding. 
I was single for 37 years and people would rip me all the time, so I could do it. Um, I've earned their right. It's not good for man to be alone. You know, uh, there's, this, there's this understanding when we look at nature that first of all, God wants to work together with us. It's not good for me to work by myself. First of all, I want to, you know, he's created me to work together with him. And then he's created us to work together with other people. You know, the word independent only occurs one time in scripture. My new DTS friends. And here it is. Ready? In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. <laughs> it's the only time independence is mentioned in Scripture. Independence, I've discovered, uh, always comes from a wounding experience. That's why in the United States, when we declare our independence every Fourth of July, we're just telling the world about our woundedness. <laughs> we didn't leave England because we were like, you know commissioned by the British, we left England because there is a, a woundedness there. And so independence is not of the Lord. God created us to be interdependent, not independent. Interdependent, first of all, with Him, and then with each other. So we kind of pick that up by looking at nature, don't we? <laughs> to know God, it takes a step of faith. But I have to talk about faith for a second, because there's a there's kind of a misunderstanding, I guess, about faith. What you have to understand is that non-Christians use the word faith all the time, don't they? They're like, keep the faith, dude. It's like, uh, okay. <laughs> you don't want to confuse them with, like, faith in who? Because that'll get them all confused. I don't know, man, just keep the faith! <laughs> <laughs> Gotta have faith, man. You hear them saying that all the time. Gotta have faith. In what? In, in who? What? You know? <laughs> Um, and so what we have to understand is, you know, non-Christians use that word all the time, and they have a certain idea of what that means, but what we, what we discover is that for us as Christians, it means something completely different. For non-Christians, kind of the world step of, of definition of faith is like stepping into the great unknown. And because this might have been the definition for you before you came to do DTS, you might have even been thinking, you know, oh my God, what am I getting myself into? I'm stepping into this thing you call it ETS, you know, because that's the world's definition of faith, and uh, I've even heard pastors use this definition, and there's this movie that came out like a thousand years ago called Indiana Jones, and, and you know, and in this movie, it's like he kind of um, is standing on this precipice, and there's, he has to cross to the other side, there's no way to cross, and as he just kind of, you know, Kierkegaard was the, that thought of the, um, the word leap of faith, <laughs> it's like, dumb concept, anyway, so he takes this step, and, this, and he discovers there's this bridge there, and he crosses over the bridge. You know, it's kind of like, you know, these guys. It's like, well, Indiana Jones did it, so there must be a bridge somewhere. <laughs> you know? And it's scary. That kind of approach to, to faith is scary, because it's like, you know, you're stepping into the great unknown. Listen, this is not God's definition of faith. You know, let, let me put it to you another way. Imagine, do we have any Swiss people here from Switzerland? No Swiss people. Oh, okay. Well, just imagine you're you're climbing cliffs. We'll say you're climbing a cliff in Switzerland, okay? And so you're you're, you're on this cliff and you're on this ledge, and you're climbing along this ledge, and you're just being very very careful. And all of a sudden, the clouds just start rolling in as they can in Switzerland, as they can at our house. <laughs> Joe knows she's been there. Our house we're like at 2,600 uh, um, feet in elevation here in Hawaii, so we wear like jeans and a sweatshirt at our home. It's it's nice and cool there. So if you ever need to cool off, just come on over. But, um, the clouds just roll in, and imagine you're on this little edge, and the clouds roll in, 
and, and suddenly you can't see anything. You can't even see your feet. And then all of a sudden you get to the end. And you're like, oh, I'm at the end. And you start feeling around with your foot. And now you're scared to go forward. You're scared to go backwards. And so you cry out and you say, help! And you hear this voice. And this voice says, just jump. And you're like, who are you? And there's like no answer. That, that's how the world defines faith, right? Now, for we as Christians, just imagine you're on your little ledge, you're climbing along, and the clouds come rolling in, you can't see anything, you get to the end, and you, you can't feel it, you start panicking and all this stuff, you go, help! And this voice says, just jump. And you say, who are you? And the voice says, oh, my name is Hansi, because he's Swiss. So my name is Hansi, and I know exactly where you are, you're at the end of the ledge, aren't you? And you're like, yeah, and... And he's like, yeah, it, it's been, you've actually been going downhill like the last 10 minutes. You're like, really? And he's like, yeah, if you just jump, like you're right here at the bottom, just, just, just come back, just, just come back, I'm right here. Now that's, that's actually what it means for us as Christians, because faith is not jumping off into the great unknown. You know, faith is just obediently stepping forward with a God who loves us, who cares for us, who knows us by name, knows our parents, our grandparents, where we were born, our whole family history, God knows you and He loves you and He's good. And so when He asks us to do something, He's not asking us to jump off into the great unknown. He's asking us just to move forward with Him. Because He loves us and He cares about us. As a matter of fact, where the world's view of faith is really scary, God's understanding of faith, when we get this understanding of faith for us as Christians, it's just a relationship building process. And as we step forward with him, we discover, wow, he really is good. He really is amazing. He really is uh, loving. Well, how does this kind of relationship happen? Like, how does relationship with God happen? Uh, there's, this, there's this great story in, in John chapter 2. And it's kind of a bizarre story, isn't it? This is the story of how Jesus changes water into wine. And uh, and it was really wine. Please don't, you know, try and say it was grape juice. Because if you've ever tried to st store grape juice in 100 degree weather, it usually ferments. But, you know, it, it was wine. And also, I mean, you know, if you look at the word oikos for wine, it's actually the same word that Plato uses for wine, and the Socrates uses for wine, and Thucydides uses for wine, and all the ancient Greeks used for wine. So it's, it's wine. And he turned water into wine. Now, why would Jesus have turned water into wine? Let's look at this story, and, uh, and I, let's, just, let's just read it here, John chapter 2. I'm just going to give you a second. Well, I'll just read it. Should I just read it? Should I just read it? Or do you want yeah. to read it? Yeah. Read it. Read, read. Okay, I'll read this one. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Now, as we're reading this, I want you to think in your mind, what is the key verse in this chapter, okay? I'll read, you think. Okay? I'll think too, but I'll read. So um, just be thinking about what a key verse is here. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. 
And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them all to the brim. And then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much wine to drink. But you say the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. All right. So what do you think is a key verse here? Yeah. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. That's a good one, right? What is that? That's verse 5. Do whatever he tells you. Ah, that's a good verse. I mean, that's a great verse to, like, you know, hit on your mirror and a little yellow sticky note or something. Right? Do whatever he tells you. Awesome verse. Good. What's another, what's another one? Verse 4? What's verse 4? Oh, what? oh, my time has not yet come. Right? That one? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a great verse. You know, this is a, I, I, you probably know what this means already, but if you don't, uh, this is a Jewish wedding. And if you were a single and male, single males, raise your hand. Okay, there you go. If you were single and male and you went to a wedding, um, if you wanted to announce to other families that you were ready to find your wife, you would bring wine to the wedding. So that's what you're. That's what you would do. And uh, you'd bring the wine. So the single guys would bring the wine. <laughs> and, uh, and they wouldn't ask there. That's why Jesus, you know, Jesus' mother, <laughs> she's a good Jewish mom here. You know, she's like, she wants her boy to get married, right? So she's like, hey, guess what? They've run out of wine. <laughs> so it's like, I've been praying this moment to come to Jesus. <laughs> so, and Jesus says, my time has not yet come. When is his time to get married? Did Jesus get married? Huh? No? Yeah? Huh? What? Huh? Jesus married? What? Yeah, right? Who are we as the church? We're the bride of Christ, right? And then there's the whole wedding supper of the Lamb when we get to heaven and we're reunited and blah, 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 all that stuff, right? So there is a time, but Jesus is saying, now's not the time, right? Okay, what's another great verse in here? This is a fun passage. What else? 11. What's 11? So, Yeah. Because he turned water into wine. I think this verse is really funny, and it's actually—I mean, you know—it's a—it's a—it's this is actually a very critical verse. We'll talk about wine in a second, but I think it's kind of funny because it's like, you know, hey, this guy turns water into wine, dude. I—I I will follow him wherever he goes. <laughs> like orange juice, so yeah, um, it's kind of funny. Now, what? How did Jesus reveal his glory? By turning water into wine. You ever thought about that? I mean, this is kind of a verse that's kind of puzzling. It says it's the first of his miraculous signs, and that's why it's such an important verse, because it's saying, you know, this is the first miracle that Jesus performed. So this is the foundational miracle for his entire ministry. <laughs> hmm. I think if I was Jesus, and I'm not, but if I was Jesus, I would have, like, raised 100 people from the dead. That would have been a great first miracle, right? Everybody's like, Grandpa! You're like, ah. <laughs> you foreshadow things to come, right? I mean, why would Jesus make this the first of his miracles? I think the answer is actually found for us in a verse that it's really easy for us to skip. And it's verse 6. Here, you know, I, this, is, this is the story of 
of Jesus turning the water into wine. And I think, you know, when you look at this verse here, it says, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jesus for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. I actually like this verse as a key verse because I have a picture here. This is how big those were. So we're talking a lot of wine. <laughs> just imagine how many bottles of wine you could fit into that, right? And he made, I mean, that's just a lot of wine. Now, <clears throat> what's interesting about that is these jars, these, these, these things, what, what they were was they would line, when you first entered a wedding, they would be along the right side and they'd be along the left side of the entrance. And when you walked into the wedding uh, area, and remember it's like a seven or seven to ten, fourteen day party, and so you walk into there and you would dip your arms into the water all the way up to your smelly, stinky armpits, and you'd wash your arms around and you'd sprinkle your face to show that you were ceremonially clean. <laughs> this water was disgusting. <laughs> Can you imagine? That's why there's this verse here, yeah, like this one, where it says the the uh, master of the banquet tasted the water. He, said, he did not realize where it had come from. <laughs> well, the servants who drew the water knew. Can you imagine? The guy would have known where they come from. He would have freaked out. Now, why did God turn that water into wine and not drinking water into wine? I mean, they had drinking water. Don't you think he should have turned drinking water into wine? It's because Jesus was making a statement here. And the statement he was making was, you know... No longer are you just going to be cleansed ceremonially from the outside, but you're going to be cleansed from the inside by the blood of Jesus. Jesus was coming to end the sacrificial system, the ceremonial system, the system on the outside that is easy to see. And he was... He was ending that, and he was beginning a new covenant, which was in his blood. And the covenant was that we will relate to God from the inside out. You see, we as Christians can often be very impressed with what we see on the outside. But we have no idea what God is doing on the inside, right? I was leading worship in New Zealand with this group one time, and it was a big uh, group of people. There were like over 100 uh, people, and they were from, I don't know, 80-something different nations, and we decided to have a different kind of a worship time and not just use music. We had um, clay and, and a potter's wheel set up where people could just use clay. We had um, all the painting and drawing set up. We had a dance floor. We had a place where people could preach if they wanted to preach. Even if it was to the corner, they could just get up and start preaching, teaching. We had, uh, we had just probably, a, like, you know, I don't know, 20 different stations of stuff people could do in worship to God. And we just involved every art that we could conceive, that we could think of. We just wanted it to be expressed that morning in worship to God. And I remember I was um, playing the keyboards, and as I'm watching, you know, there was this guy standing in the back of the room, and he had these dark sunglasses on, and his arms crossed, he was just standing there. And I thought, dude, this guy, you know, like, I mean, look around you, dude. There's like, there's like stuff going on all over the place. It was almost incredible moments of worship I've ever been in, and he's just standing there. And so there came a time when I could just kind of slip away from the keyboard, and I went back there, and I was like, I just kind of wanted to, you know, set him straight. And so I was like, you know, so dude, um, how's this worship time for you? He's like, awesome, man. I'm like, hmm. Yeah, so what's going on? He's like, well, I walked in this room, and God just spoke to me from Ezekiel, where he says, brace yourself like a man, I'm going to speak to you. He says, I've just been standing here. 
God's just been speaking to me, man. <laughs> He's like telling me all this stuff. God's been speaking to him. I was like, oh. Uh. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> because it's so easy for us to judge from the outside, isn't it? When God is working on the inside, we have no idea what the Lord is saying to even the person next to you. What he's saying to their hearts and minds. You don't know what's going on. And yet God, you know, is relating to us from the inside out because relationship with God happens first on the inside in our hearts and in our minds. I have a friend in, uh, in Thailand. She works in the uh, red light district there with prostitutes, and she's been there for 45 years now. And uh, when she first started her ministry, in Thailand they have a law that if you're a prostitute, you need to have your hair, nails, and makeup done. Even though prostitution is illegal officially in Thailand, the government has a law that says that they want their prostitutes looking nice. So if you're going to be a prostitute, at least have your hair, nails, and makeup done. So, so, uh, so she thought a great way to reach these prostitutes would, would be to start a hair, nail, and makeup salon in the middle of the red light district. So that's what she did. And uh, she started 45 years ago. And... Um, she said when she first started it, you know, she had worked so hard at these girls to try and get them to become Christians and to leave prostitution. And she said they would, you know. And then three months later, they'd be back on the streets again as prostitutes. And she was getting so discouraged with this lack of success. And one day the Lord just spoke to her in a dream and said, Why are you so impatient with these girls? Why don't you have the same patience that I have with you? And she thought, oh my goodness, God is so patient with me. Like, why am I so impatient? And so she began to change the whole way she did her stuff. She, she said now it, it takes about three years, two to three years, from the time a girl first comes into her, her hair salon to give her life to Jesus. It takes about two to three years. But they always come back to her salon. They can't figure out why they love her salon so much. They have no idea that all the girls working there are former prostitutes and stuff. They don't know that. <laughs> and they get served, you know, meals and... And um, coffee and cookies and tea, and they just love these girls. And so, you know, these girls just keep coming back there. And after about two or three years, they become a Christian. And then she says it takes another two or three years for them to leave prostitution. But when she changed this, when she changed to start operating from this perspective, she has a hundred percent success rate. She's the only ministry in Thailand that has a hundred percent success rate. When they leave prostitution, they never come back. Now, some Christians will be like, how can these girls call themselves Christians and they're still prostitutes for two or three years? I mean, you know, and they get all upset about that. You know, it's because God works on the inside first. <laughs> they have to learn what it's like to trust God as father because most of their fathers sold them into slavery, into prostitution. And they have to learn what it means for God as defender because they've been abused their whole life. And they have to trust God as provider. And they have to learn about, you know, forgiveness and, and how God can free us from guilt and shame. And as they begin learning all of these things and believing it, they eventually get to a point where they're like, where they hear the Holy Spirit say, you know, you don't need to do this. You know, God loves you. You don't need to do this. You know, you weren't created for this. And when they leave, they never go back. So relationship with God happens first on the inside, in our hearts and in our minds. That's where relationship with God happens. 
Well, what, what keeps us from embracing, truly embracing relationship with God? And I'm speaking even beyond just giving our life to Jesus. I hope all of you have done that, but if you haven't, then just take a moment and say, Jesus, you know, come into my heart and my life. I want to give my life to you. And forgive me and I forgive others and just say that to him. But what keeps us from really just embracing, fully trusting and relating to God? You know, I was um, I was on a plane one time, and I was flying from um, Egypt to Greece, and this girl was sitting next to me on the plane, and I and I really wanted to talk to her, but I wasn't sure if I should because as a as a guy, you know, I shouldn't probably open up a conversation with her. I didn't want to put her life in danger or anything. I didn't know if she knew anybody else on the plane or um, anything like that. So I thought, okay, I probably shouldn't talk to her. And so I just pretty much decided in my mind that I wasn't going to talk to her. And all of a sudden, she turns to me, and she asked me, we're going to take a break. Want to come back? I'll talk about the question. Happy break! Oh. <laughs> all right. So, yeah, so this girl sat next to me on the plane, and, uh, and I was about to talk to her, and I thought, okay, I'm not going to talk to her. And all of a sudden, she turns to me, and she goes, excuse me, are you a Christian? And I was like, uh, yeah, are you Muslim? <laughs> and she's like, obviously. I said, wow, your English is really good. She said, yeah. She said, I was um, actually born in Egypt, and but I was raised in London. My parents are doctors there. And so I was raised in London, and I was just back in Egypt visiting family and stuff. And I said, oh, okay, that's good. She said, so you all a Christian? And I said, yeah. Uh, she said, oh, that's so great. She said, I have some questions I want to ask you. <laughs> I thought, oh, okay. Um, sounds good. I said, no problem. Go ahead. Ask me a question. She said, all right. So my first question, said, what does the Bible have to say about love? I was like, wow. Um, that's a great question. My first thought was, um, that's just a great question. And then my second thought was, Derek, don't screw this up. And then my third thought was, what does the Bible say about love? (laughs) I said to her, really the Bible says two important things about love. The first is that God is love. Not God is like love, or God is similar to love, or there's a lot of things that are the same about God and love, or whatever. (laughs) But actually, God is love. Um, it's the fabric of his character. It's who he is. Everything about him comes from that foundation of his love. Because that's who he is. He actually is love. As a matter of fact, it says in 1 John 4, verse 6, it says it twice in this chapter. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. Did you know something? <coughs> Everything in this world, it says in Thessalonians and in Galatians, is held together by the love of God. Everything in this world is held together by the love of God. If God would stop loving, physics would fall apart. The universe would fall apart. Business would go into a a tailspin. Uh, Everything is held together by the love of God. The entire universe, everything, every aspect of life we can think about is held together by his love. If it wasn't for his love, it would all just go careening. That's why, that's why in, in you know, the Tower of Babel, they were building this tower, but they were doing it without him. And God knew if they succeed at this thing, they're going to destroy themselves. 
And out of his love for them, he confused the language, the understanding of the language. You know, because because he said, you know, if they build this, they're going to be successful. You know, nothing will be impossible for them. But he knew that because they were doing it without him, it would end up in a complete disaster. So God is love. The other thing the Bible says about love is, what's the opposite of love? Well, that's what a lot of people say is they'll say hate, but actually hate's not the opposite of love. As a matter of fact, you know, we as Christians, I'm so discouraged sometimes because we just don't hate enough. Man, we need to we need to increase our hatred, I'm telling you. I know you all look at me like I'm crazy. But let me just tell you, what does Paul say in Romans chapter 1? He says, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, and cling to what is good. We can tell whether or not our love for God is sincere based on whether we hate evil or not. Actually, hatred is a really important component in love. If God didn't hate sin, he would have never sent Jesus to the cross. Aren't you glad he hated sin? And the effects of sin? And how it's devastating our lives? There are things that God hates. As a matter of fact, if you want to do an interesting Bible study, you know, to look at, you know, just look up all the things that God hates and ask yourself, why does God hate these? I mean, you know, here we read, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. How barbaric. Hmm. Yeah. That's how many babies we've aborted worldwide since in the last 70 years. Now, we can read a verse like this and say they burn their sons and daughters in the fires and sacrifices to their gods. And we go, oh my gosh, it's terrible. How barbaric. Hmm. In 70 years. Do not worship the Lord your God in the way they worship their gods. What are our gods? Materialism, comfort, safe face, whatever it is. Hmm. See, don't be quick, so quick to disassociate our current culture with the culture back then. Because that's often what we do, is we read the stuff and we think, well, that was thousands of years ago, and we don't do that anymore, <laughs> right? But in actuality, it's worse than it's ever been. I think because we believe the lie of evolution, somehow we think that everything's getting better in this world. It's not. Our technology's increasing, yeah, but I, I, you look at the morality of the world right now, and you can't say it's getting better, it's getting worse. As a matter of fact, we shouldn't be surprised by that as Christians, because Jesus said, before he comes back, it will get darker. As advanced as technology gets, it will never solve the moral issues of our heart. We could all have our own robots, and it still won't solve the moral issues of our hearts, will it? So, God hates stuff, and it's a good study sometimes to study the things that God hates and ask why does he hate it, and, and, and really meditate on it and not just dismiss it. But the opposite of love is not hate. I didn't go into all of this with her. I'm just doing that with you because, you know, you're, you're at a more mature level in your relationship with, with Jesus. But I said to her, the opposite of love isn't hate. There are things we should hate. We should hate injustice. We should hate the consequences of sin that it has in our families and our communities. We should hate, you know, the, the things that God hates, too. 
right? Because it's a sign of the sincerity of our love for him is that we're concerned about these things. I know people that are inspired, godly people that are inspired by hate. You know, I have a, a friend who just hates human trafficking and, and he just is motivated. He wrote a law that made trafficking of women illegal in the state of Oregon because it wasn't illegal in the state of Oregon and, and Portland was the number one place in the country for the trafficking of women. And so wrote a law and it, it, and it, and it made the trafficking of women illegal in the state of Oregon just passed a couple of years ago. You know, he, he loves the Lord and he's just fueled by this hatred of things that God hates, you know, a passion for... For justice, which is, you know, justice from God's perspective. We have to get justice from his perspective, because otherwise we're all screwed up <laughs> in our justice, pursuit of justice. It has to be from him, his perspective, right? And, uh, and so, that's, you know, God is love, but then the opposite of love, the Bible tells us, is not hate. That's an important component of love. The opposite of love is actually fear. It says in 1 John 4.18... It says, perfect love drives out all fear. Perfect love drives out all fear. And she turned to me and she said, oh, that makes total sense. And I said, well, someone you're writing that down? Sure, go ahead. I said, that makes total sense. She says, I said, what do you mean? She goes, she said, oh, I have to tell you. She said, I, I've really been struggling with why I have such a hard time loving people. She said, I'll tell you, she said, I, I, I just really have a hard time being open and vulnerable to people and also um, like giving love and just receiving love from people. She said, I'm not just talking about like boyfriend, girlfriend. She's like, in all of my friendships and almost any of my relationships, I have a hard time just, you know, loving people and just receiving love from them without thinking there's some kind of hidden agenda or whatever. She said, now it makes total sense. I said, really? really? <laughs> she said, yeah. She said, you know, I grew up in a, in a typical Muslim family, she said. And, and my dad, he's a, he's a really, he's a, he's a good man. But in the family, he was just very, very controlling. So where I should have been learning about what love is, she said, I was actually learning fear. She said, so fear is actually the foundation of all of my relationships. She said, if I, I can think of anything, like even... How I saw my teachers or professors in college, or she said, there was fear in every single one of my relationships where there should have been love. She said, because I don't think I even really know what love is. Because in my family, it was just always fear. I turned to her and I said, wow, um, most people don't put things together that quickly. <laughs> She's like, yeah, I know. She graduated from Oxford when she was 14, um, got her master's degree by 18 and her PhD by 21 and was becoming a doctor and at age 22, so she's a Facebook friend of mine now. <laughs> Interesting statement, isn't it? Fear is not from the Lord. Did you know that? When we look at the character of God, you know what's missing? Fear. And we were created in His image. So if we were created in his image, we were created without fear. Huh. Where did this fear come from? Well, it came from, you know, we read this story in Genesis chapter 3 where Adam sinned and then God came down and God called out and said, where are you? And how does Adam respond to the voice of God? 
It says, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, and so I hid. And that is where fear entered relationship. Relationship with God and relationship with people. As a matter of fact, I would say we were never designed to be afraid of God. He had never intended for us to be afraid of Him. Before the fall, we don't see fear in the relationship between God and Adam. We see them walking in the garden in the cool of the night and talking to each other. There was no fear there. And throughout Scripture, when people see God, what does He say to them? You know, Isaiah, woe is me, you know. Do not be afraid. <laughs> right? This is where fear entered relationship. And I would say that, you know, this is the response of most people to God. Is when they hear Him or discover Him. Is they become afraid and they hide. Now, I want you to open your Bibles up, or open your Bible app up, or whatever it is that you use, and we're going to look at a number of different Scripture passages, and I want us to look at Peter a little bit. You know Peter in Scripture? You know, one of Jesus' dudes, um, Peter the disciple? And we're just going to talk about Peter for a moment, and we're going to just look at all of the different times when Peter and Jesus interacted, and I want to show you something, okay? You ready? So the first chapter or passage I want you to look at is in Matthew or in sorry in Luke chapter five, verse one through ten. And just read this to yourself in Luke chapter five, verse one through ten. And when you're finished reading it, just look up so I know you're done reading. And then we'll just talk about I just want to point out a few things about it. So we're in Luke chapter five, verse one through ten. I do it this way so that if you're reading in Norwegian or uh, Arabic or whatever you can read in your language, totally fine. Um, and so just read Luke chapter 5, verse 1 through 10. And then keep your Bibles open because we're going to look at a number of different passages, okay? But, oh yeah, in John. But that was later. How do we know Peter was afraid, though? That was the right answer. You know how we know? What? Well, yeah, because he pushed, pushed away. But, but the, what does Jesus say to him, the very next thing? Don't be afraid. <laughs> That's how we know Peter was afraid. Because <laughs> Jesus said to him, Don't be afraid. Isn't it amazing that Peter would have pushed Jesus away actually because of fear? What was he afraid of? We'll find out here in a little bit. Let's look at Matthew 16, 13 to 19. The next time that Peter and Jesus interact is Matthew Six, uh, 16, 13, and 19. Just read that passage to yourself. This is the next time Peter and Jesus interact. If you're ever in Israel, go to the Gates of Hell, um, or Gates of Hades in some versions. But um, it's a place where um, 
you know, about 200 feet up, 300 feet up, there's a cave, and you can actually climb up there. And you go inside the cave, and you kind of go through this area into, like, this kind of big place that opens up. And then when you go there, there's, like, a cliff that goes down about another 300 feet or so. And that's where the Jordan River starts. And uh, during the time of Jesus, the pagans would go up there, um, and they would throw their babies and virgins and stuff over the cliffs and sacrifice them to their different gods. And then they would look and see if the Jordan River was red enough with the blood. And if it wasn't red enough, they'd keep you know, sacrificing people until the priest said it was red enough or whatever. And it was so disgusting to the Jewish people, they called it the gates of hell. And you could actually go to the very spot where Jesus was having this conversation with his disciples, which is really cool, and just kind of stand in that spot where people would kind of stand and overlook all the pagan stuff that was going on. And, and Jesus asked them this question, and he's like, you know, he says... Who do people say that I am? Jesus asked brilliant questions. We'll talk more about that later, but obviously because he was Jesus and he was brilliant. But the questions he asked were just pretty amazing. Here he's asking them this question because they really don't know who he is. You know, so he's kind of giving them an indirect opportunity to answer the question. It's like, who do, who do people say that I am? And some are like, Elijah? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Moses, no, John the Baptist, one of the prophets, <laughs> I like that one, <laughs> just like cast the net as big as you can think, you know, one of the prophets, I don't know who you are, and then Jesus says, well, you know, who do you say that I am, and now it's like super uncomfortable, and it takes a revelation from God to finally um, get one of them to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and Peter's the one who said that, I love Peter, let, let me tell you something, my dear, mostly Protestant friends, are any Catholics here, no, uh, I love Catholics. Okay, anyways, um, you know, there, there is a negativity in Protestant denominations against Peter. And, like, he's some kind of bumbling idiot. And this goes all the way back to the division between Catholics and Protestants, and how the Catholics think Peter was the first pope. And to react against that, the Protestants have made Peter this, like, kind of a dumb idiot. Let me tell you, Peter was a brilliant guy. He was a hard-working guy. He was a fisherman. If any of you think, if you know anything about commercial fishing, you're out there trying your hardest to catch everything. You come back. You got to sell it before the fish rot. So you know you're you're up early in the morning selling the fish. You're selling all day. He had business partners. He owned a small business. I love small business owners. I wish I could s surround myself with just small business owners because those people just get stuff done. You know what I mean? They just they just get it done. They're always they're always moving. They just whatever you know, just problem solvers. I just love those guys. And Peter was one of those guys. He was just like you know, let's just let's just get this going, man. Jesus, okay, you're asking this question. Let's just answer it. You know, what I mean, I love this guy. He was smart. He was hardworking. And so that negativity against Peter, don't let people um, convince you about that because it's just not true scripturally. If you look at it, Peter was actually a pretty smart guy, and he was the one who would just say stuff when everybody else was like. Mm. So I just love that about him. Anyways, here, here's, here's what is exciting about this passage. is that This is the first time we see God as Father revealing something to someone other than Jesus. God as Father revealing something. Now, all of this time, God has been referred to as God, but here, he's referred to as Father, and he's directly revealing something by the power of the Holy Spirit to one of his children, to Peter. And Jesus says, hey, guess what, Peter? On this relationship between the Father and his children, this direct line of communication empowered by the Holy Spirit, I'm going to build my whole church, and nothing will be able to come against you. 
the Spirit of God in us. And so this is this is Jesus saying the relationship between the Father and that relating from the inside out. Remember, because that was the whole foundation of Jesus' ministry. On this whole relationship, I'm going to build my whole church. And even the gates of hell will not be able to overcome it. All right, look at uh, Matthew 26, same book, different chapter. Matthew 26, 31 to 35. Matthew 26, 31 to 35. 